Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. But Bob, happy Monday to you. <laughs> and to you as well, Doug. And to you as well. We're, we're here in the middle of fall. Kids are back in school. You know, they've had some time to kind of adjust back into the rhythm. And, and now we're in it. We're in it. And uh, that's why I'm excited about today's, um, today's conversation that we got to have with Jason Everett. Uh, as he's talking about some things that I know are on the hearts and minds of a lot of parents, a lot of pastors and youth pastors, as we're talking about um, some issues touching sexuality and uh, transgender issues and things. And I, I just know that this is such a, a pain point within the church because we want to love people. We just don't know how to respond always correctly. And so uh, I'm, I'm just excited for this conversation because I think Jason brings a lot of clarity. And I would 100% agree with you on the clarity that he brings. So with that, no further ado, um, we hope you enjoy this episode. Well, uh, Jason, welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so I, uh, kind of a unique story. Uh, my, my son took a theology class in his last year in high school, and um, one of his assignments was he was given a podcast called Pints with Aquinas, and uh, he was told to listen to it, and he listened to it. It, it just was such a, uh, it was almost like a pivotal moment for him in terms of understanding the conversation from a Catholic perspective around the transgender and LGBTQ plus stuff. And he shared it with me and I found it, you, you just have such a unique voice in the conversation in one who works with young people and who is really trying to just uh, support young folks and also hold this, this, you know, this beautiful biblical truth of, of how we're created in God's image and what all that means. And so, yeah, I'm like super stoked to have you on the show. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your particular calling to ministry. Yeah, well, back in high school, uh, I, I started to get involved in my faith a little bit more seriously, got to college, started leading high school retreats. And on the uh, retreats, these kids would really open up to me about the struggles they were having with human sexuality and dating and their own parents' marriages. And I realized they had no formation in the subject of chastity. Then at the same time, I was also doing a three years of crisis pregnancy counseling, specifically sidewalk counseling in front of an abortion clinic. And I started feeling late. Like, why am I meeting this woman 45 minutes before she has an abortion? Why couldn't I have met her when she was 15? Because maybe if she had learned about chastity, then she never would have dated this guy to begin with and be in this difficult situation today. And so I realized I was kind of like throwing sandbags on the banks of a flooded river when there's a dam broken upstream. It's like everyone's focusing mm -hmm on the supply of abortion, but no one's talking about the demand for it and relieving that. And I realized that the real demand was it was unchastity. And at the same time, I was reading a book called Love and Responsibility and discovered, wow, this seems like an antidote to so much of this hurt and confusion, kind of wedding this virtue of chastity with authentic human love. Started sharing that with the young people, and then the ministry kind of snowballed to the point where within a few years, we're speaking to 100,000 kids a year. And now, 25 years later, I've spoken to more than 2 million of them on six continents. And uh, what I've seen in the last five years has just been this hockey sick acceleration of questions on 
not only same-sex attractions and porn addiction through the phones, but this whole concept of gender identity stuff and just meeting the parents, the kids wrestling with this stuff and realizing a lot of the parents and pastors are just scrambling for answers mm -hmm. of like, how do we deal with this stuff? Like, I didn't go to the seminary and learn how to offer a pastoral re response to non-binary you know, people in the, the church. Like, what am I supposed to say? And so yeah. I realized, you know, I got to, maybe I'll just write a book on this. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll read, you know, 15 books, then I'll have a good handle. And after the 15 books, I realized I haven't even scratched the surface. Like I need mm. to read five more in endocrinology, five more in pediatric medicine, five more in psychology mm. on feminism, Marxism. And after 20,000 pages of research felt like, okay, now I'm more in a place where I feel like I can speak into this subject with charity and with clarity. And so came out with a book on the subject and now I'm getting a lot of requests to speak on and on how to balance those two things of charity and clarity. Mm. I love that balance of charity and clarity. And, and so, I mean, obviously you can't run through, you know, 20 million pages of research in the next 25 minutes, but what were, what are some of the things that you're finding that just like blew your mind? Well, one is uh, like you go to gofundme.com right now and you just type in top surgery and which means a double mastectomy. These are young women who don't necessarily, it's not necessarily they want to be guys. They just know they don't want to identify as female anymore. And we can dive into the etiology behind that. Um, but you type in top surgery on gofundme.com because having a top surgery is a pretty big deal. It costs about $10,000. You know, where's an adolescent girl going to come up with 10 grand? Well, crowdfunding. Go on there now. There's more than 40,000 girls now raising money to have a double mastectomy. And if you live in Oregon, the age of medical consent is 15 years old now. I mean, you can't use a tanning bed there until you're 18, but you can have both of your breasts surgically removed because you don't identify as female without your parents' knowledge or permission through the entire state of Oregon. I mean, just mind-blowing stuff. These procedures are being done on girls as young as 12 years old in Oakland, California, being told, hey, if you just go through this, then you'll finally feel at home in your own body. But then within about 10 years after the surgery, the suicide rate climbs to 19 times higher than the general population. When you're actually looking at the girls transitioning to male, uh, suicide rate more than 40 times higher than the general population. And so this common narrative you hear that it's you transphobic bigots that are causing them to take their own lives. Well, reality shows those who take their lives, 90% of them have a diagnosable mental health condition. And those things are simply not treated with hormones and surgery. Mm -hmm. And I think with that, it, it's almost like one of those things, right? Because I can think about right now the parent, right? They're a pastor, or maybe they're thinking they're a pastor thinking about the 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 family in their congregation where they have a young, you know, a young girl who's really struggling, who's really wrestling, or or a young man who's really struggling and wrestling and trying to figure out, you know, like what do I do? And I, I can think about that that conversation. That there's sort of a piffy statement that I've heard over the years of, "Would you rather have an alive son or a dead daughter?" You know, mm -hmm. something like that, but. It's interesting because it sounds like some of that research, like, why isn't it just not even talked about? Like, what, what's going yeah. on with that? Well, you have an extremely vocal minority handling a lot of the media where this, this narrative that, hey, if you don't let your kid transition, and this is very powerful for the parents. Like, if, if I don't let my kid transition, I could contribute to their own suicide. Well, I just got to toe the party line and, and go along with it. But 
I remember one uh, mom, the, ki- the daughter came up and said, mom, I'm non-binary and my pronouns are they, them. And the mom was like, okay, well tell them to go clean their room. <laughs> like she wasn't phased by it. She didn't freak out. She just moved on with life. And, and so with parents, it's really important one. Now, granted, that's not the best policy of just kind of lightheartedly passing it by. If, if your kid comes to you, mom, dad, I'm trans. I want a binder or I want hormones or puberty blockers. First thing to say isn't like, okay, what's that perfect apologetic biblical response that I can use to debunk gender theory? It's easy enough to come up with, but the kid is not looking to be disproved. They're not looking for like some airtight argument of why this is not good anthropology. They want someone to actually listen to them and not freak out and a parent to say, wow, honey, that, that's, that's really, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. I imagine that was probably really hard to tell me because you were probably afraid that if you told me this, I'd freak out at you, that I'd yell at you, that I wouldn't love you anymore. But I want you to know that it doesn't matter how good your grades are. It doesn't matter what awards you win, what university you go to, what big sin you commit. You can't change my love for you. You can't make it go up or down because it belongs to you. It's all yours. They need to hear that I'm conditionally loved. And now you start asking some loving questions like, wow, when, when did you start feeling this way? And what was going on in your life at that time? And, and what really triggers the dysphoria? Is it when you need to dress in this way or act in this way? Tell me more. And so these initial conversations are pivotal because you want that kid to walk away, not with the perfect answer. You want that kid to walk with, wow, I have someone in my life that will actually listen to me. And this is not just, just, you know, subjective morality of, okay, let's just walk, wander together in the wilderness here. It's like, no, I want to ask you thought provoking questions. And in a sense that the phrase I'd use is try to listen to gender dysphoria with reverent curiosity. And what I mean by that Mm. is stealing a concept from Jay Stringer, who helps a lot of people uh, struggling with porn addiction. He said, we're going about it all wrong, treating these unwanted fetishes and desires and behaviors like they are the problem. He said, no, it's actually the roadmap to the person's healing. It's crying out for some unmet need. And if all we're doing is responding to that with Mm. shame and white knuckling it, it, we're going to get a lot more progress if we have a little compassion on ourselves. And so let's try to Mm. listen to the story behind gender dysphoria, because I think it's going to provide a roadmap to that person's healing. Yeah, Jason, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, a pastor, a youth pastor might have come across something like this maybe once in their entire ministry career. Now you'd be hard pressed to find a youth group where there's not someone who's identifying as trans or uh, asking these kind of questions, you know, and I guess the two options are either um, it was just really covered up very well for for a long, long time, or there's something happening now. And I'm wondering, in all your reading and all your research, what do you, to what do you uh, attribute this kind of seeming explosion of people identifying as trans and wanting these kind of surgeries and interventions? What what's happening? Yeah, well, there's a lot of factors. One of the analogies you could use is imagine this this river that's swollen beyond its banks and just destroying villages. Okay, wh- where did it get all swollen? Okay, well, was it a torrential rainfall? 
or the 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 caps on the mountains melting? Uh, you know, is there a dam broken upstream? Are there you know springs of water that have burst forth? It could be a bunch of different things exploding at a similar time, and I think that is going on here. Mm. But one of the things I think that's very clear is a new concept that's been titled rapid onset gender dysphoria. This is a term that came out from a uh, a researcher, not a conservative. Her name is Dr. Lisa Littman, worked for Planned Parenthood, you know, very left-leaning individual, said there seems to be a template behind of what we're seeing, that there's this massive spike, not only in previously, it used to be middle-aged guys and young boys experiencing gender dysphoria, but over the past decade, decade and a half, there's been a massive flip of the sex ratio. We're seeing an astronomical rise of adolescent girls typically who come from progressive families, go to public schools, spending an inordinate amount of time on social media, on Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube, typically often having high-functioning autism. In Mm. fact, 42% of people identify as trans are on the autistic spectrum. Mm. And she saw these commonalities and gave it this title of rapid-onset gender dysphoria, where these kids did not have a pre-existing history of child dysphoria. And then in the middle of adolescence, one of their friends came out, I'm trans. And before you know it, the next friend, I'm non-binary. Pop, pop, pop. Before a few minutes, you've got eight girls in the public high school all identifying in this way. And so Abigail Schreier wrote a terrific book called Irreversible Damage, How the Transgender Craze is Seducing Our Daughter and Our Daughters. And I'd recommend any parent with daughter read this thing. It's a real, and now this isn't the answer to all of it though. I mean, I'm emailing back and forth with a gentleman today who who feels very invalidated by that concept because for him, he's in his thirties and forties now, but he said, no, that's not my story. I didn't fall into this because of Instagram. I wrestled with this since as long as I can remember. And he's in church, doesn't want a surgery, doesn't want hormones, loves God, but still wants to dress like a woman. And, you know, we're working through these things together. And so we need to be careful that we don't try to take a cookie cutter explanation for all of this or imply that if you just to get to the roots, then the dysphoria will go away. Sometimes it doesn't. But your holiness isn't measured by your capacity to just overcome this thing. Their holiness is measured by your willingness to conform your heart to God's heart, your will to his will, and walk with him through this struggle, understanding he loves you and he's walking with you as well. Yeah, I think think what I really appreciate is that idea of like, there isn't a cookie cutter answer, right? Because I think as pastors, uh, many pastors I've spoken with, whether it's a youth pastor, a senior pastor, lead pastor, executive pastor, whatever, it's like, what's that one thing I can say you know, or, you know, in this moment, that'll just bring deep clarity to, to, to all of this stuff. And everyone be like, oh, that makes sense. And people will just walk away. And so I would ask you what that one answer is, but it sounds like you're actually telling us that there is no such thing. And so much of it is just listening that person into existence in some, in some ways that can just help them understand that like, hey, I'm, I'm here to listen. What does it look like? Like, what are some tools for pastors you know, as, as they're sitting across from a family who's wrestling with this, that you would just say, man, this is just some really good stuff just to be aware of when a dad and a mom come and they say, what do we do? Yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing one evangelical pastor, I think said it best. He said, look, if someone in your congregation comes up to you and say, pastor, I'm trans, what do you say? He said, what you say to them is, look, I feel like I'm meeting you in chapter eight of your life, but I haven't had the opportunity to learn about chapters one through seven but I'd really like to. Can we have coffee on Tuesday? That's the answer. That's what comes out of your mouth is the fact that you have two ears and you're willing to sit and listen because they need to understand that there is room for them 
in the church to navigate through these issues. They have this idea that I've got to just get over my dys- dysphoria, then I'm welcome in the pew. Once I get all my junk together, then I'll fit in with all these perfect people. It's like, no, we're all a total mess, okay? Come on in. You know, we need your fellowship as much as hopefully you need ours. And so th- they need to mm. see that, okay, pastor's not going to freak out if I start telling them how I got into this stuff. I mean, one, I remember one college guy telling me, he said, for me, it wasn't like some childhood dysphoria. He said, it was my porn addiction. Mm. And then I, and the years of looking at porn just kind of stumbled upon these genres of transgender porn that I was never initially seeking out, but I found myself kind of weirdly aroused by the stuff. And then the more I watched, the more I wanted to kind of live it out in my own life. Mm. And so for him, it's more something called autogynophilia, which is the arousal of the thought or the sight of oneself as a woman. And so this is distinct from like some childhood gender dysphoria thing. So I think it's really important as, as we're talking about uh, parents, you got to listen, pastors, you got to listen to give them room of like, Hey, this isn't going to be a sprint. I'm not going to just try to win some debate with you. This is going to be more of a marathon. And so parents, you need to make sure you're taking care of yourself mm. because this can be a really exhausting road sometimes because you may have had all these dreams of your son getting married and having this grandkid. And now my kid wants to get a s- surgery that's going to sterilize him or my daughter is going to want to go from puberty blockers to cross-sex hormones. It's going to sterilize her for the rest of my life. Like there's a lot of, of trauma on everybody's side going through this. And so parents making sure you're getting self-care, that you're not beating yourself up. What did I do wrong? I could have done this. I should have done that. It's like, no, who's the best parent in the universe? It's the heavenly father. Now look at how messed up all of his kids are down here, okay? It's not because he's a defective dad. His kids have free will. They do dumb things like ours do too. And so cut yourself a little slack. Realize this is, you know, hey, this might go away next year. This might be on the radar for a long time, but you're not going anywhere. And your kid needs to know that and know that you love them. If you're looking for resources as a parent, we have a website called chastity.com. And if you go to chastity.com slash gender, that's the page we house all the resources, whether it's advocacy legal groups for parents who are in custody battles or one parent wants to transition the kid, the other doesn't, or schools that want to create policies for incoming families of like, hey, here's where we stand on this stuff. And instead of waiting for some lawsuit to come in, um, different websites of detransitioners, people who realize mm. this was not the right path. And, and here's mm. why I'm trying to get this message out. So all that stuff, chastity.com slash gender. I, I, Jason, this is such good stuff. And I feel bad almost for cracking a joke, but uh, I love I, I love the website address chastity.com. That, that, is, <laughs> that is super interesting to me. Um, oh yeah, no, it was yeah. owned by a satanic comic book company oh my years gosh. ago, and they they wouldn't sell it to us for less than a hundred thousand dollars. So I had a bunch of people pray, what? and sure enough, they went out of business, and we what? ended up eventually getting it for free. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. See, now I'm glad I made the crack because we got yeah. to hear that story. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So you mentioned having been able to speak to uh, just hundreds of thousands of kids. I'm wondering, what is your platform? How are you doing that? Where are you finding these opportunities? Um, yeah. To tell us a little bit about how that came to be. Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, I started in, in college, you know, speaking on retreats in a classroom here and there, and then eventually started snowballing where we're doing a lot of high school assemblies. And so we'll go to the high schools and we'll say, look, you're not going to bring us in to speak to just your freshmen. 
it's the whole school or nothing. So they'll bring 1,200 kids down to the gym, and then I've got an hour and a half with those kids to dive into pornography and starting over and all those things and how to live out chastity and what real love looks like versus lust. Um, we do public high schools. I've got to pull out the religious stuff uh, and those presentations. Doing a lot of universities. We've done Harvard, Princeton, Air Force wow. Academy, Naval Academy. We've been on six different continents. We'll do an international trip typically once per quarter. Um, so yeah, just been. We don't really market it anymore because we get more requests than we can actually fulfill. Um, but yeah, so we're doing it through that. We have a podcast that's called Lust is Boring, uh, where we bring on different guests to dive into the whole questions that, relating to anything on chastity or gender. And then we've created a ton of resources, books for parents, teens, mm. uh, just to evangelize them on God's plan for human love that's and amazing. sexuality. That's, I'm, I, I'm just amazed that you're finding that kind of reception on in the in the public sphere how how are the audiences what what do you find like do the kids receive it what what are teenagers how are they how are they encountering this message what are you finding about them? <laughs> the audiences are a piece of cake it's the administration that's the tough wow. nut to crack yeah um, it's the gatekeepers and so it's harder than ever now to get into the public high schools even though we don't talk about god during the talk they're just there's this fear, this reticence yeah. of these messages of values and you know chastity and things like that. Um, but the kids, I mean, Steve Jobs kind of said it best, where he said, "People don't know what they want until you show it to them." Huh. It's like the iPhone. I didn't think I needed an iPhone until I saw one. I'm like, "Hey, that would be kind of neat." Same with chastity. It's got so much baggage associated with. Oh, it's this medieval repressive, prudic, neurotic attitude towards sex. It's like, no, that's that's not what it is. Chastity is a virtue that frees you to love. Because if I can't say no to my sexual impulses and saying yes, that means absolutely nothing. But then it also frees you to know if you're being loved. Because if a guy won't date a girl unless she'll give him certain sexual favors, then it's not even her that he wants in the first place. It's mm. the pleasure that he wants to extract from her. Mm. And so chastity gives clarity to know if you're being loved or simply being used. And when you explained this way to the kids, I told the kids at a high school in New York after the talk, hey, if you guys need to hang out and talk, I'll be over there to listen in the corner the kids formed a line seven hours long and they came up and said, I've never said this to anyone before, but, and then they poured out the molestation, the cutting, the addiction, the abortions. They just, they just poured out because they want to know that someone will listen to them and not wag a finger in their face. They want someone who's happy and at the same time demanding. And so they want to be challenged. They want to be good. They want lasting love, but they have no clue how to find it because their parents' own marriage is a dumpster fire. But I find that these kids are remarkably open to this message of chastity. It's amazing. It's so cool. Yeah. And, and I think, I think what, what, what I'm curious about in that is like, you know, what are the stories of students that, that keep you up at night and keep you going in, in, in this, you know, in the ministry that you have? Well, I mean, it's, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, I remember talking to a girl in Chicago and after the talk, she came up to me and she just showed me her hands and she said, yeah, last night, my, my, my palms of my hand were filled with my own blood cutting myself after hooking up with another college guy. And she just wanted to know, why do I keep going back to this? Why do I keep punishing myself? And, you know, taking this deep dive and imagine this poor, and you wonder why she's doing bad math class. And this is what she's doing, dealing with at one o'clock in the morning the night before. I mean, your heart breaks and you realize like, I'm not going to wag a finger in any kid's face. This trauma that some of these kids have been through is just mind blowing. The amount of abuse. I met one girl at an Indian reservation and she had been raped by 13 different guys not 13 times, multiple times by 13 different men. 
but even she was just craving like, how do I find love when I just feel like such a broken mess? And, but the beauty of keeping in touch with these kids, sometimes 5, 10, 15, 20 years after these assemblies, to be able to see them put the pieces back together and with some stumbles along the way, but to, to find authentic love. And so it's beautiful now to see them sending me pictures, of their babies and their weddings and stuff like this. And, you know, after having left, I mean, physically abusive relationships and the kids literally showing me the bruises on their bodies. Uh, I was at one high school and the teacher pulls me aside and says, oh, you see that girl over there? Do you recognize her? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't. And they said, oh yeah, you sat in that stairwell with her after the talk, you know, three years ago. And you got the feeling that whoever she was talking to online was not a good guy. And you had us get in touch with her and follow up. Turned out it was an older man who is a registered sex offender who's trying to groom her. We got the police involved. He's now in jail and she's having a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with her friends <laughs> at the lunch table today. Man. And it's just man. like, praise God. Yeah. I mean, that is just the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, stuff like that. You see a lot of bad, but you realize, hey. It's not my job to be the Messiah. It's beyond my pay grade. The job's already taken. You know, my job is just to say yes to whatever he wants me to do, and he'll take care of the rest. Jason, I think we've been kind of seeing the beginnings of a more scientific and evidence-based pushback against uh transitioning and you know at least asking the 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 important questions i'm wondering for you as you look out into the future where where are we going with this what what how is this going to end up 10 15 20 years from now yeah i mean i i tend to be an eternal optimist and you know yeah the good is getting better and the bad is getting worse at the same time but the pendulum i think is going to swing back because nature, you can't argue with nature. You can try to reject it, but you can't yeah. really dis disprove it. And what I mean by that is you look right now on forums like reddit.com. There's 50,000 people identifying as detransitioners on Reddit right now mm. saying like, hey, we went down the path. It was not the answer. I mean, look what's over happening in the Scandinavian countries right now from Finland, Norway, Sweden. Look at what's going on in Amsterdam, even in the UK. Very difficult to get puberty blockers now when you go to some gender clinic in Amsterdam. That's where all this stuff started. But now they've seen the follow-up and they realize, whoa, wait a minute, slam on the brakes. The evidence base was extremely poor for this. And now we're dealing with 15-year-old boys who have osteoporosis from being on puberty blockers for all these years. We're dealing with all the stuff of the girls after being on cross-sex hormones for five years. Now she needs a hysterectomy because her uterus is atrophying and you're, she's in an increased risk of endometrial cancer. The lawsuits are now hitting over there. Biggest gender clinic in the United Kingdom was just shut down this past spring. 35 of their psychologists quit. Uh, the high court in England ruled that a girl cannot have informed consent to go through these things. It was interesting. In one of these gender clinics, there was a psychologist who came out and said, yeah, when I worked there, I took the kids who wanted transition, and I was also dealing with a patient population who had already had a surgery. And he thought, well, what would happen if I brought these two groups together to kind of connect with one another and hear their stories? He said, once I did that, 98% of the kids who wanted to transition decided, I don't need that anymore. Change the plans. That is not going to be the answer for me after having met these people who already went through and realized it didn't solve the problems. It just created new ones. And so the only question is how much carnage are we going to see 
before these lawsuits really start changing the tide, before the pharmaceutical industry's shareholders realize, wait, the cost of litigation is now outweighing the profits from these medicalization procedures, we're out. Unfortunately, that's what's going to lead the tide, I think, is the dollar bills. Mm -hmm. But it, it's happening with how many detransitioners we're already seeing. I, I just I can I can just imagine like uh, a parent or or even somebody right now who might be a pastor who's been thinking about this kind of stuff. You know, maybe they're struggling with their own sexuality. What would you have to say to them right now? I would say let Christ meet you in that. I mean, how often did the very place we think we're losing him is exactly where he wants to encounter Come us. Come on now, whether it's that brokenness of a particular addiction or relationship or whatever some trauma of the past, that, that spot that we think God can't go there. That's just too messy. That's too dirty. That's exactly the very point where the cross is intersecting the earth in our life. And I think we need to not be afraid to go there uh, of these issues that like, hey, I know outside I look like you all got it all together. Um, but opening up that wound, not only in the intimacy of your own prayer life with God, but to people in the community who you can trust of saying, look, I know that I look like I've got it all together, but let me just be frank with you. This is what's going on in my life because the devil can't follow you into the light. You know, there, there was a, a medieval saint who once said that the, the evil one works like a mistress. As long as the relationship is in the dark, it can flourish. But once it is exposed, the entire affair is ruined. That's why a sin that's confessed to another is half overcome. Mm. And so we've got to be able to not just go mano a mano versus the devil, but just be honest, like, hey, here, here's this wound in my life. This is the way I'm struggling. And I know as adult men, this is hard for us because we got a lot to juggle. I got my ministry, I got work, I got my family, I got this, I got that, I got that. Fitting brotherhood into that piece is often the one thing that drops. That was easy when I was in college and I had like a girlfriend in some classes. Yeah, I got my brothers, you know, the wife and kids and this and that. Brotherhood typically falls off the map first, but we've got to kind of reclaim that, I think, because if we're not making time for that, I don't know, we just make much less progress in the interior life. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. There is something so helpful about having like legit community that you're able to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly with. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, when we first started, you talked about the, you know, why is the flood? Is it, you know, or you talked about how, you know, I'm, I'm meeting this person right here at this particular point when the problem was like way up the way up the river. So thinking about, you know, family or family of young kids, what are some preemptive things that mom and dad could think about doing even now to help to help their kids sort of just begin to navigate some of these questions that just seems for many parents, they feel like it's just forced down their kid's throat in school or, you know, on whatever space. But what are some ways that parents yeah. can start preemptively working or working in ahead of this thing to just realize that like, Oh, we can really do a good job of, of, of discipling our kids well in the way of Christ. Yeah. I mean, three things come to mind is one, as a parent, you need to be really alert of if they're going to a public school, what the heck is being taught over there and pull your kid out. If you need to get involved in the school board, if you need to, because some of this gender ideology stuff is getting rammed down these kids throats. I mean, I was in Boston department of education for the state of Massachusetts mandated for 480,000 kids, starting at pre-K, which is four years old, to learn read aloud books on gender theory, starting at four years old, every single kid, state of Massachusetts. Parents need to be on top of that stuff. Second thing I would say, well, say, oh, that's not our issue. We go to good, smaller Christians, classical education school, or we're homeschooling our kids. Okay, prayer time at night. 
bless the kids. Thank you, Jesus, for making Caleb a boy. And, you know, may he be strong to be like his daddy. And so you're affirming their sexuality, that you're just praising God for who he made them to be. That, I think, is also helpful. And then also to realize maybe if your kid does manifest some of this stuff, try not to be overly rigid and say, no, you will wear that pink dress to church or, you know, put those bows in your hair. Sometimes being like overly forceful of things that could trigger dysphoria make the kid more likely to dig their heels into the ground. And so keep an eye on what they're doing at school, affirm these things. And then when the culture hits them and you're not expecting it, I mean, use that as a teachable moment. I was at an NBA basketball game with my boys. That was last year. Cheerleaders run out onto the court, which is enough of a problem. But then one of them's a guy, not like your buff college football player, you know, hoisting the girl up. No, no. This is a guy dressed like the girls doing all the booty dance stuff and shaking and this and that. And my boys see it and they just start laughing. I mean, seven years old, 12, ah, they thought it was like some parody that they're like, well, wait a minute, dad, what's going on? Like, what is that guy doing? I mean, and so I'm thinking, okay, I really was not expecting to have a discussion on gender dysphoria with my seven year old on the way home from the Suns game, but all right, let, let's talk about it. And so you can't do that. That didn't happen thing. It's like, okay, well, here's how to understand that in the context of our faith. And I mean, I was at uh, Ikea getting furniture for one of the kids and we're going through a little cafeteria line to get some Swedish meatballs. And the guy served him has got makeup and hair and nails and you know, my kids are like, uh, and so I made sure to treat that individual with extra love and respect and compassion and asking him how his day was going and thank him for the meatball that like just treating him as a human being. And so our kids need to see how we interact with these individuals instead of treating them like lepers. Oh, walk on the other side of the street. There's one of them. It's like, no, that is not what Jesus Christ would have done. And it's not. And yeah, granted, we need to protect our kids' innocence, but if that's being thrown in their faith, a teachable moment. Let's, let's use that to teach them how Christ would have responded himself. Yeah. It, it's so it's, I think it's really confusing for many of us out here who don't, who just kind of, you know, this isn't our area of study. We're just trying to live life, you know, and on the one hand we hear, well, gender is a construct, but then on the other hand, it's like, well, if you feel you're not a tomboy, maybe you're, you're non-binary, you know, and and it's like, yeah, I've got a daughter who doesn't wear dresses. Uh, I just want her to know that that she's still my daughter, and it's okay. You can be a girl who does who wears pants. That's not yeah. a, that doesn't yeah. mean that you have to feel like you were born in the wrong body. You know? Yeah. No, I mean that's such an important point that like there's no room anymore to even be a tomboy. That if you don't fit into the stereotypical narrow, rigid Barbie box of what a woman is, then maybe you're just not one. Or maybe you're the guy and you're not into bow hunting, you know, and playing football and all this stuff. Well, maybe you're just not one of the guys. And so you just have to mimic the guys to feel like you fit in when your real reality is something else. And that's why stereotype induced gender dysphoria is a real thing. Mm. And so we've got to understand that just like gender theory tries to get a person to conform their body to fit their personality, Gender stereotypes try to get a person to get their personality to fit their body. Yeah. Neither one of those is the right approach. I had heard one feminist author, she just said, look, a woman is a person with a female body and any personality, not a quote unquote female personality with any body. And so just to remind them, your body is not meaningless. Your body is meaningful. And if you don't fit into the narrow rigid box, guess what? You weren't born into the wrong body. You were born into the wrong culture. 
a culture that's telling box. you might have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your culture's telling you got to hurt your. Yeah, out of the box. Yeah. 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 You don't have to hurt your body to be your authentic self. Culture needs to be reconstructed, not your body. Yeah. Um, Jason, this, you know, I I just appreciate you. I, again, when I heard, when I heard my son interacting with, with the, with the podcast that he sent me, it was just such, it was so cool to be able to have new language and new words to talk to my 18 year old son um, about all of this stuff. And what I really appreciate and, and what I want to make sure people don't miss is that I appreciate the amount of compassion and care and love and willingness to step into the mess of all of this for the sake of that person and like whoever they are, whatever their identity, wherever they are at in the conversation. And I think that that posture is, is one that I haven't seen a lot of because normally it's, 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 you're awesome and we love you no matter what, whoever you are, do whatever you want, you know, be true to yourself or it's the other side of, you know, we're just going to suppress it all down. But you, you sort of seem to hold this really unique balance of, of, of loving God and loving your neighbor, no matter where they are. Um, I just want to affirm that in you. And I also want to just ask a question like, how are ways that maybe pastors can embody that? Or what are some really simple, practical tools that would be helpful for us to kind of like keep in the back of our mind when we're dealing with anyone who walks into the doors of our church? Yeah. I mean, the image that comes to mind is kind of hold on to their hand with one hand, hold on to reality with the other hand, and don't let go of either hand. Mm. And so to, to not compromise truth for the sake of love or love for the sake of truth, but to keep in the back of your mind, I'd say, just remember that gender theory is an ideology and but gender dysphoria is something that afflicts individuals we have an ideology we're dealing with and we have individuals that we're dealing with and if all we think we're really focusing on is let's tackle the ideology and then we're protecting the individual it's like a lot of times these young people in particular feel like if you question their identity in any sense you try to debunk any stuff you get this anaphylactic reaction, right? I mean, this, this, you're guilty of genocide and hatred and violence. And it's like, whoa, 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 no, I'm not doing any of that stuff. Why are they having this big reaction? It's because some of the deepest needs of a human being are a source of, of to have identity, community, and mission. And if they haven't found that in their family or in their church, and they're wrestling with this non-binary or gender fluid identity, and then they stumble upon some Instagram influencer online. It's like, wait a minute, what they're describing meets kind of my experience that I've had. Like, yeah, wait a minute, this is my identity. And now I have found this LGBTQ group on campus. Now I have my community. And now we have a mission as a victimized minority. And so these deep human needs of identity, community, and mission are all met. And so if you start poking at that, it's not just a debate over anthropology. Wait a minute, you are now trying to strip from me my identity, my best friends, our mission, and they're going to dig their heels and come after you. And so realize, let's make sure that we're not only talking about an ideology, we're talking to individuals. And during those conversations, to try to err on the side of compassion and listening. And granted, it'll come to a head sometimes of like, wait a minute, I want you to use my pronouns and I want you to do this and I want you to do that. And we need to hold the line. We do. We need to be truthful and honest with these individuals, but have a, a lived foundation of love underneath that. So that way, I'll, you know, I'll end with this uh, on this topic, at least. One woman came to me and she said her nephew is wanting to transition. And he came to her and, you know, Aunt Sally, you know, my name now is Mark and my transitions are he, him. 
And, uh, you know, but it was a girl transitioning, you know, to male identity. And the, the mom was, or the aunt was like, well, uh, I'm not going to call you your pronouns, you know, but I love you anyway. And the mom and the kid was like, mm, okay, well, because your aunt's so, so, so I'll let you do that. <laughs> like, it was almost like she, this kid knew, okay, I know she loves me. I'll let her get away with that stuff because I know I'm loved. Mm. And so let's try to really pack in that love and then they'll care a little bit more, hopefully, about what we do have to say. Yeah, that's <laughs> Jason. Thanks so much for your time. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. First of all, thank you. Uh, it's good to be with you today. I'm really grateful for this conversation. And my guess is we'll probably be getting a ton of emails in terms of just some clarification or some clarification about like, you know, tell me more and like, what are some other things? And so how are some ways people can interact with you? Or I mean, chastity.com is one, but where, where could people find you and follow you? Can you just state those again? We'll make sure we put those things in the show notes. Yeah, the website is chastity.com. Uh, we have a podcast called Lust is Boring, which is on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, in our Twitter handle, Instagram is just my name, Jason Evert. Same thing with YouTube, Jason Evert. Uh, we've got a Facebook page that we just got back last week. It was hacked when my gender book came out. Hacked for five months. Um, wow. And we finally got it back. The person could have been posting worse stuff. All they were doing was posting everyday Judge Judy content for the last <laughs> five months, which is really funny. Um but now that we got it back, we actually gained 15,000 new subscribers <laughs> of Judge Judy fans, who I'm sure can't wait to learn all what? about chastity. Um, so God, it works all things for the good. Um, oh my and, God. Then, and then lastly, the, the book we came out with is called Male, Female, Other, a, a Catholic Guide to Understanding Gender. And so it's a Christian response to this whole thing that's got more than a thousand references in the endnote section. So it'll dive into preferred pronouns in terms of the suicide stuff, you know, puberty blockers, the philosophy behind it, the pastoral care. If you're a parent or if you're yourself wrestling with gender dysphoria, what does God think about you and how you're just not a walking abomination to him kind of walks you through all of that different stuff. So it's called male, female, other, and you can get it at chastity.com. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Jason, I'm going to ask you one more thing. Can you pray for us uh, as, as we take off? Pray for the pastors oh, listening. Yeah, yeah, pray for the pastors yeah. listening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the calling that you've given us to reflect the heart of a father. Uh, we would pray that you would increase in us our understanding of your love for us, because we will not be a better father to our sons than we are a son to the father. And so please help to remove from our own hearts um, any stoniness there, any doubt of the Father's tender love and compassion for us, because it's to that extent, Father, that we encounter your heart, that we'll be able to image that to those that you have entrusted to us. And we all pray this through the holy and healing name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. 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 To the pastors, to the men and women without honor in their own hometowns, neighbors roll their eyes, and friends walk away because the fit doesn't fit like it did, you aren't invisible. Your service isn't unseen or unappreciated. Those hospital visits mattered more than you'll know. Those meals, those words, that wisdom, that rebuke that didn't go over well, that sermon that didn't even land with you, that ball game of your kids that you didn't get to see. To an all too thankless job, but one so well done, we say, thank you, pastors. Thank you. You are lamps on stands for everyone in the house. And it's so much lighter with you here.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is produced by Joel and Bound at Audelin Productions. Uh, he is ready and available for any of your podcast, video, or creatively telling your story needs. Also, if you're looking to grow in your leadership, Kairos Partnerships offers several free resources to help you do that on a weekly basis. We encourage you to follow us at Kairos Partnerships on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our weekly newsletter that J.R. Briggs writes weekly called Five Things in Five Minutes. You can find the link in the show notes to subscribe. We highly recommend it. And lastly, if this podcast has added value to your ministry, we ask that you would leave us a review on whatever platform you are downloading us on. Uh, and we ask that you would share it with other pastors. We're really hoping to continue to create a community of pastors that care for one another. We'll see you next week.